Almighty God, forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Uh, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. Help us to continue according to your ordinances. Help your true servants here. Give us the strength to be delighted in what you have done, Lord, and help us to preach your truth to this valley. Help us, as Pastor Rick said earlier, the men of this church, help us to be bold and to lead uh, this church, Lord, and to help us have a backbone to uh, preach your truth and um, live it out. And um, I pray, pray that for the women as well, that they would stand up for the truth of your word, Lord, and to uh, live it out. And uh, help us to disciple those that come here, Lord, and and that you would uh, embolden us and strengthen us in all we do. And I'm grateful to you for this place. I'm thankful for uh, my brothers and sisters here. And, um, and it's like a family here, Lord. And I just pray that you continue to grow this family. Help us to um, just uh, love each other and uh, love those that you bring here. And uh, thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And chapter 11, I'll be reading verses 38 through 46. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. Gospel of John, chapter 11, and I'll be reading verses 38 through 46. The Gospel of John. Chapter 11, beginning at verse 38. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. Because of the people who are standing here, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had been dead came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen these things, Jesus did, believed in him. 
But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them, saying, told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the scribes gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Amen. What does Christ think about unbelief? Or does, how, does, how does it affect him? How, how did it affect the Lord Jesus Christ? We, we, we were already told that when Jesus, in verse 33, that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who were weeping, that he groaned in his spirit. And now again, as he approaches the tomb, he groans again in his spirit. Unbelief, unbelief troubled Jesus. It bothered him greatly. And this word groan, we, we looked at a, a number of passages from the Gospels where this word is used. I'm not going to go back over those passages, but what does it mean? It means to have an intense, strong feeling of concern. And it also has implications of him being indignant. Not indignant with his people particularly, but indignant with their unbelief. It's not that God is surprised, right? Jesus is is all-knowing. But remember, he was a man too. That There is almost a sense of astonishment with Jesus, when he sees the unbelief of Mary, Martha, possibly his disciples, and then the people who are there, people who had seen and heard all of the things that he had done. You know, some of the people who were there mourning when they've got to the tomb, some of them probably sat down and you know, oh, we're so tired. Let me close my eyes a little bit. What's, this, what's he going to do, pray here? It's probably what they thought. But Jesus, is he groans. It really, he was moved painfully because of the unbelief. So a, 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 a longer, more complex definition than one that's shorter. Jesus is painfully moved at the lack of faith on the part of those who should be exercising it, in light of who he is and all that he has done among them. In other words, he was grieved to his soul by the unbelief of his own disciples and others who had seen and heard all of the miracles that he had done up to this point. You see, we can have our theology completely ironed out on paper, right? So uh, it's a wrinkle-free theology. It's just perfect, We confess with Mary, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. But then in time, when difficulties happen, when things come up, when challenges are are in front of us, that theology that we have on paper, we never put it into practice. Her confession is right, but it, it, it was not fitting for her to stop where she did What she should have said to Jesus was, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not be dead. But now that you're here, let's go to the tomb and raise him. 
from the dead. In reality, even though we have good theology, what we tend to do is we limit the extent of God's power, mercy, grace, and love. That's exactly what's happening here. By what we can see and what we are willing to believe he can do. Instead of looking to his word and seeing how he has acted in the past for his people on behalf of his people, we just, we just look at the circumstance and think very worldly about it. Right? We use science. We're very scientific and, and logical like engineers about our circumstances. And we don't think that God can intrude. God can do something. This is a common experience among God's people. Now, let me be clear. It's not that our faith limits what God can do. Right? It's not, not that, you know, uh, a lot of charismatic Christians and word faith preachers, that's the excuse that they use a lot of times. Oh, I, couldn't hear, I couldn't heal your blindness because you don't have enough faith. No, because um, what does Jesus, look at verse 41. Uh, excuse me. Uh, 40, verse 40. Listen to what he says. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Therefore, since you don't believe, you won't see it. He's just going to rot in the grave. Good night, everyone. No. They still lacked the faith to believe that Jesus could raise the man from the dead. But what he is saying is that you would have been much more prepared Instead of hopelessness right now, what you would have had was anticipation. When when Jesus said, move the stone, she would have said, hurry up, Lazarus is coming out. She wouldn't have said, no, he stinks. He stinketh. She wouldn't have said that. She would have said, move the stone, hurry up. She would have started pushing the stone herself. So it's not that our faith limits what God can do is that what we expect him to do and what we ask him to do is limited by our faithlessness. And this is very common. So, so I'm, I'm saying this. Now, I'm going to prove it to you. This, is very, this was very common throughout the history of God's people. I want to uh, look at three, uh, three texts from the Old Testament and then two texts from the New Testament. Is it two texts? Yeah, two texts. So look, look first with me. This is a shorter one. The one from uh, in the Psalms is a bit longer, but look at Numbers 14, 11. It is a common experience among God's people to lack faith and confidence and what God has accomplished. And it is not because God has not accomplished great things among them. They could look back. So, so we could look back in our own lives. We can look back at the lives of other Christians. We can look in church history. And of course, we could look to the Bible and see God act for his people. But we refuse to believe it. We are very faithless. We go through a difficulty, and then when the Lord delivers us, it's not anticipation and hope fulfilled. It's our despair has now been quenched because we didn't believe he could do it anyways. And so Numbers 14, verse 11. 
Remember, Joshua and Caleb, they, they, let's go. Let's take the land. Yes, we saw the giants. We, we saw the, the armaments. We saw everything they have. We saw how many people they were. But so what? Because we're not going to fight. God's going to fight for us. Let's go take the land. And the other ten spies were like, nope. And what did everybody do? Well, they believed the majority. Yeah, okay, let's not go. We're afraid. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people reject me? And that was the issue. They were rejecting God. Really, it's despise me. How long are they going to despise me, these people? How long will they not believe me? With all the signs, with all the miracles, all the wonders which I have performed among them. What did he do for them just a few months before? I mean, he destroyed the most powerful nation in that region just to bring them out of the land. And we're reading the plagues now in our our, uh, Old Testament scripture reading. He did all of these things to deliver them. And now there you know, are a few you know, really tall people and uh, nobody wants to fight. They, God can't do anything for us. They don't believe. That, that, that was the issue. And, and this, uh, in essence, uh, stirs God. Look at Deuteronomy. So this is the event itself. But now look, as Moses in Deuteronomy, he's reflecting on on his people. Deuteronomy 1, beginning at verse 28. Yep. Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 1.28. Um, I'll read from verse 26. It says, Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against me, the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and says, Because the Lord hates us, he has, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the lands of the Amorites to destroy us. Because the Lord God hates us, he has brought us out of the dome and put us in this little chapel. It's because God hates us. He doesn't love us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are greater and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakin there. You know, there's barely 40 of us. And, and what are we going to do? How are we going to evangelize? How are people going to get converted in this area? What, how, how are we going to expand God's kingdom? And how are people going to be converted when there's so little of us? What can we do? Then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God, he goes before you. 
He will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you. Look at this. As a man carries his son. Right? The idea there is not that, you know, um, how you carry your son out of a sense of convenience, but how you bear up with your child. Right? So, so the way that a man, in this sense, carries his son is that little baby is born and you bear all the responsibility for him until he's able to take care of himself. And then even when he's able to take care of himself, you show up every once in a while, hey, you brushing your teeth? You know what's going on? What's going on in here? You know? Not washing your clothes, all those dishes look, right? You, you, you bear them. You, you carry them up. This is what a father is supposed to do and that's exactly what God does for his people. He carries them. In all the way that you went until you came to this place. It's, it's like God knew that the nation wasn't ready to enter into the land yet. So he carries them through the desert. And then when they're prepared and fully matured and he believes that they could take the land, that they're prepared to do it, he just drops them right there at the front door. Yet for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out the place for you, to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in a fire by day and in a cloud by night. What was the issue? The issue was unbelief. They did not believe that the Lord could do this for them. Not that they could do it. Right? Not that they could do it in and of themselves. No, they couldn't. In and of themselves, they couldn't do it. They could not have freed themselves from Egypt. Right? So the historians that try to, so historians take two approaches. One approach is that never happened which today is just ludicrous. There's so much evidence, right? It's just ludicrous. So they don't really argue that much anymore. So the other argument is, is no, they like rebelled. It was like Black Lives Matter, but in Egypt. No, that, wouldn't, that, that would not have happened. It's impossible that something like that would have happened. The, the Egyptians would have absolutely destroyed the Jewish people. The Jewish people were not prepared to fight. They, were, they, were, they didn't have any weapons. They were not b- people of war, they would have been completely destroyed. But what does God do? God brought them out himself. And God was prepared to give them the land. But they didn't believe he could do it. And they were so afraid that they didn't even go forward. They just, they, they had disdain for God. No, we don't trust you. We don't trust you so much. We're going to begin to talk bad about you, all of us. And God, of course, he's grieved over their unbelief. Look at Psalm 78. So we saw the event itself. When it occurs, the issue was a lack of faith in God. After the fact, Moses is reflecting. He's telling the second generation. Remember, that first generation is already dead. This is the second group now, and this group is going to go into the land of promise with Joshua, and he's reminding them, hey, don't be faithless. Remember, the issue was not believing that God could do this for his people. Now, Psalm 78, there are a a number of verses in Psalm 78. Psalm 78. And uh, look at uh, beginning at verse 21. 
Therefore, Psalm 78, 21, Therefore, the Lord heard this. They're complaining. And was furious. You see, right, that, that, uh, the, the description of Jesus standing there and groaning as he, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But there is this, in his soul, there is this groaning because of the unbelief of his disciples. They should have been there just like, call, they, as they were walking to the tomb, the disciples should have been like, do you want to see a resurrection? Come on. <laughs> this guy, he's, about to, he's about to raise somebody from the dead. Call, call all your neighbors. So he, he was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob. And the anger also came up against Israel. Because they did not believe in God. And did not trust in his salvation. And, his, and here, trust in his salvation doesn't mean that he is able to redeem individuals. No, that's not what it is. It's in his ability to save his people. To deliver them. It, it, it doesn't have a redemptive flavor there, but from the circumstance and the difficulty that they're in, that God can bring them out of it, right? That sense of salvation. They didn't trust that. And yet, he commanded the clouds above and opened the heavens. Look at verse 32, same, same, uh, same psalm, but just verse 32. I'm just going to read some, some text out of it. He, so what David will do is he'll recount all of the things that God has done for them, and then he'll, he'll add, um, excuse me, this is Asaph. Asaph will recount the mighty works of God, and then he'll note the unbelief of his people in light of the mighty works of God. So we're noting those portions. Look at verse 32. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. Be honest with yourself, right? Look, look, th- think about your life in the, in, in the context of the church, right? Your, your time as a Christian in the context of the church and the people that you've um, been in church with, right? And recount that history. Recount it. Just, just think back in your mind, the history of that. Think of the victories that the Lord has given his people and then think of the failures. And I would venture to say for most, the failures are more dominant in your thinking and those failures keep you from believing that God can do great things. It's not the victories that you focus on. When you think about doing something, when, so when I say things like I want to build a church in that field over there, generally what, what I hear people say to me is, you can't do that. There's no way. 250 people won't come here. Look at verse 41. Yes, again and again, they tempted God. And li- listen. And limited the Holy One of Israel. It's not that they bound him and limited, but in their conception, God can't fix this problem. He can't do it, so I'm not going to ask him to do it. I'm going to ask him to like to do something simpler or, or something that I think he can accomplish. 
So instead of, instead of praying, Lord, uh, I, I pray that an hour from this church, we would have a church, and then an hour from that church, another one, and then an hour from that one, and then an hour from that one, till, till there's just so many churches in this area that it's, it's like Jerusalem, right? You're, you're in the grocery store, and you're like, hey, brother, what's going on? Uh, I remember when, uh, when, when all of y'all flew to um, Florida, it was a bunch of people from here, and then the mudges were on the plane, and then, right, all these people, and I said, y'all should just start singing on the plane, you know? That would have been fantastic, all these Christian people, and, and uh, pray that maybe, okay, we won't be alive for it. Let's say we're not alive for it, but in 25 years, when people do go to the Walmart, that you could, like, start singing hymns, and people on the other aisle will sing the same hymn. Like, they'll know it, because there's so many Christian people in this area. And if you think to yourself, well, yeah, God can't do that. See, that's your problem, not the Bible's. That's your lack of faith. You are limiting the Holy One of Israel. You're limiting the God who, who to Abraham, Abraham, who was, was, he was, his well was dry. And his wife's womb was barren. And God said, I'm going to give you nations. They're going to be yours. And he did it. He's done it today. We're, we're part of that. The reason we're sitting here is because God made a promise to Abraham. And he's still keeping that promise. And even for individuals, like there's people who come to church here, right, and they sit with the dourest faces in the world, like they're sucking a lemon, right? The entire time they're sitting here. I see, I see it, right, because I'm looking around, you know? The dourest faces, like they're sucking a lemon. I pray that God would convert those people. I know they're not Christians. I know they're not converted because they hate the word of God. Right? They, they don't want to hear this. This is the boring, right? This is so boring to them that the, the, they're, they're fighting to stay awake. And some of them don't fight. They just go to sleep. Right? And I see that too. I pray that God would convert them and God would make them zealous, that, that they would be embarrassment to the friends that they have now. That's what I pray. I don't pray that they wouldn't come back. I want God to convert them. Look at verse, so verse 41. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Look at verse 42. They did not remember his power. Think about yourself. When you think of, of let, uh, the same example, when you think of the unconverted people that may attend this church or the people that you know that are not Christians and you don't share the gospel with them and you're not praying for them regularly, you must think it was really easy to save you. That's what it is. It must have been a cinch. I was just ready. No, you were uh, uh, dead in trespasses and sins. Who can bring a clean thing out of, a clean, uh, out of an unclean thing? No one can do that. <laughs> can, can a leopard change its spots? And an Ethiopian change his skin? No. But every once in a while, God will make an albino. Right? You're like, what in the world? <laughs> Your parents. <laughs> How did you? Well, God did that. Look at verse 43. 
When he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan, turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. This, 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 so you have this creek. This creek is really, you, you could drink water out of this creek. You may not want to, but you could. I've done it and I've not gotten sick. <laughs> and the farther up you go, the cleaner it is. You swim in it. You can see all the way down to the bottom. And this is how the, the rivers were in Egypt. But then God in his power turned them to blood. And it wasn't like it, he turned them to blood. And then when they try to dig shallow, um, shallow uh, springs, not, not shallow wells, when they tried to dig shallow wells, what happened? Blood came out of the ground. Who would have ever imagined? Who could imagine? God. But we limit his power. And that, what we're doing when we do that is we're tempting God to say, then I won't do it in your lifetime. Or I won't do it here. If that's, okay, if that's, if that's the way, if that's the kind of God that you want, I won't do it for you. Deal with the consequences of your unbelief. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the enemy. Do you remember that? You were, you were captive to the devil. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You walked according to the course of this world, the spirit who is now um, uh, working in the sons of disobedience. That's how you walked and how you lived. And God transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That took power. That took resurrection power. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. The same power that raised Christ from the dead makes Christians and sanctifies them. And you think, well, God can't do nothing. Yeah, we're all a bunch of old people here. I can't do nothing in this church and with, with us. Okay, then he, maybe he won't. Maybe he won't. If that's what you're going to think, if that's how you're going to pray, if that's how you're going to act, then he won't. He won't do it then. He sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He also gave their crops to caterpillars and their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending the angels of destruction among them. And you can argue, right? This is like a, the, the liberalist state in the world. There's no way you could even pass a heartbeat bill in this state. Why go to the abortion mills? Why, why preach in the streets? These the liberal people in this area, they've rejected the gospel. Well, God can send a destroying angel and annihilate everything they've built in this state. Everything that Christians have handed over in this state. Because that's what we've done as Christian people. We've just given it to them. Because we've not believed that God could accomplish miraculous things. I'm not, a, you know, I'm not some, you know, whacked out of my mind charismatic, right? Praying over transmissions and flat tires, right? That's not this, I'm not talking about stupid stuff like that. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about 
signs and wonders that God promises to do in this age, particularly the redemption of his people and the establishment of churches for the glory of King Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger. That, that's, that's what I pray, right? So I pray, Lord, and, and he's, I, I would say he's, he answered my prayer. Lord God, convert Governor Cuomo or pour out the fierceness and the indignation of your wrath upon him. And he's not our governor anymore. He answered my prayer. And maybe other Christians prayed that way, but he answered my prayer. I prayed that ever since I moved here. No, I prayed that ever since he lit up the, which building? Which building? The, what? the Empire State Building, when he passed that atrocious bill that if a baby is alive and it comes out of its mother, the doctor can grab that little baby by the head, pull it out, and break its neck. He could do that. You could do that in this state. Or you can take that little baby and you can put it in a room and let it cry till it dies. You could do that here. He made a path for his anger. And he did not spare their soul from death and gave their life over to the plague. And that's what we should pray. God, we're here. Right, so here's some vivid, vivid illustration of this. I'm not even going to say this pastor's name. I'll tell you in private. I won't say it on recording. Speaking to this pastor in Manhattan, and it, members of, um, how much should I say? Members of that congregation have to do things that appear unethical to go to work now because of the mandates that are being passed. And, and you, you have to remember this. Look this up. Fetal lines, fetal lines, and vaccinations. Fetal lines and vaccinations. Because many Christians are taking exemption because you know how they're coming up with these vaccines? By killing unborn babies. So, so, so we play, right? We play, we go along with, with, with what the government wants us to do. But we have to remember the government is no friend of the Christian people and they have oppressed them for generations. Why? Because we do not believe they're God. And that's, Manhattan is an hour and 45 minutes away. I want God to make a path for his anger. That's what I pray. I'm, I'm, we should pray this. Lord, make a path for your anger. I want to see you angry with these sinful people. Deliver us. And destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the firstborn of their strength in the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. That's what he's going to do for us. No matter how difficult it gets in this state, if we're faithful to him, you know what he's going to do? He's going to lead us faithfully like little sheep. He's going to care for us. Water, drink, provision, care. He's going to care for us. And then part of his care for us might be, you know what? This land is very barren. So what I'm going to do is they're going to persecute you to the point of death so that I could bring you to heaven. 
And then you can be under the throne praying, Lord Jesus, when will you come and pour out your wrath on those sinners? He might do that for us. So he makes a path for his own people. But you see how indignant he is when they don't believe in him. He, God is indignant when we do not trust in him. In Mark 9, look at two New Testament. Uh, th- yeah, Mark 9, beginning at verse 17. Mark 9, 17. Then one of the crowd, Mark nine seventeen. Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples, that they cast it out, but they could not. And he answered and said to him, O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I bear with you? How long, shall I, uh, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And, you know, people think this way, right? So they've got an unconverted, and I'll use a son. You've got an unconverted son, right? And... Um, you could just kind of live, let him live unconverted and you don't invite him to church. But you know what Jesus would say to you? Bring him to me. I'll take care of it. You, br- you bring him to me. You pray for him. You preach the word to him. You bring that boy to me. He is, a, he is indignant with you because you don't. You bring him to the Lord Jesus. Then they brought him. And when he saw him immediately, the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And you would think that would, right? Um, Yeah, when I bring him to church, he falls asleep. He hates it. Doesn't want to talk about it afterwards when we're having lunch. There's no interest. So I just, you know, I stopped doing it. Stopped inviting him. Stopped bothering him. I don't want to bother him. Does it bother Jesus? Jesus asked, how long? Has, he been, has this been happening? Not because he didn't know. I think he says this because he wants his disciples to hear it. So how long has he been so hard-hearted? From childhood. And often he throws himself both in the fire and in the water to destroy himself. And that's what, right, that's what unconverted children do. They destroy themselves. They're giving themselves over to their lusts, pleasures, sins. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes.
immediately the father of the child <laughs> cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that's the thing many people won't do. They, they just keep not believing in the Lord Jesus and in what he can actually do. But, but, but you see, Jesus says to him, if you believe, I can do this. But not that if you believe, you give me permission or you, you open up you know, the opportunity for me to accomplish this. Because the man says, I don't believe you could do it. But help me. Because that's what I need. I need you to help me believe that you can do this. When, um, when Jesus saw the people come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, deaf and dumb spirit, come, I command you, come out of him and, entered him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out from him. And he became as one dead, so that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? You've not devoted yourself to the things that are, to summarize Jesus, I'll read the text too, but you've not devoted yourself to those things that would make for you to be able to do that. This kind can, can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And fasting, I believe, belongs in that text. So, that's Mark 9. Look at John 10. This is a, a shorter text. But Jesus gets right to the point in John 10 when he says this. He says, 10.37. And, and uh, he's indignant when he says these things. He's not, you, you, you listen to uh, modern day pastors and preachers and they make Jesus almost so, so effeminate and so careless that um, he's not really communicating anything worthy of being listened to. They're definitely not as preachers. But he says to his disciples, if, uh, to the people, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. If the things that I'm doing are not from God, don't believe me. But if I do... Though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So when you open your Bible and you read it and you see Jesus do these things, he actually does them, well then you can ask him to do great, marvelous things. And if you decide you're not going to, then he won't answer your prayers because there are none to answer. You have no confidence that he can do it, so he's not going to do it. Our Lord is painfully moved at the lack of faith in his power and ability. He is painfully moved by it. So here, here's some direct application, right? So unbelief in others. So, so let's say there, there is a person maybe lives in this area, just very hard-hearted, or somebody that you know. And you've tried to witness to them and you've books, Bibles maybe, sermons, invited them to church and done tons of things and you're just like, man, I'm just, you know, I'm just exhausted. I can't anymore. Do you have any reason, is there, is there any 
example in the Bible of somebody who hated Jesus and then became a disciple of Jesus. Paul. He hated him. Look at John, look at Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 7, so he is a young man at this point, but in Acts Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is killed, everybody gives their cloaks to Paul. So basically, what it appears like is he's the guy in charge. So they all throw their cloaks at his feet, and he's standing there watching, and they're pegging Stephen with stones. They kill him. They stone him to death. And then in... uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, Stephen's death, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen, Acts chapter 8, and I'm reading at verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the, it absolutely tried to destroy the church. He made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's what he did. He was an absolute savage. He hated the church of God. He hated the people of God. But then look at Acts um, chapter 9, just one chapter over, beginning at verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he found, so that if he found any who were of the way, and this is what originally Christianity was called, probably because Jesus made that statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's a cult now called the way, so if you ever run into them, don't have nothing to do with them, but... And the cults do that, right? Like Jehovah's Witnesses. They're, they're, they're a cult, but they use this biblical name to deceive people. And, um, who were of the way, whether men or women. And he brought them bound to Jerusalem. So he was devoted to persecute. He hated the church. You could have a son who's like a rabid atheist who hates everything that has to do with Christianity. So you've probably gotten to the point you don't even want to talk to him about those things. You don't invite him to anything. You, right? You just, I'm, you know, this kid doesn't, just doesn't want to do anything with religion. So I'm just going to leave him be. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And then the, the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. <laughs> and Jesus is basically saying, you, you've, you've taken on an impossible task, young man. You're not going to win. I wonder if any martyrs have ever said that, right? They're being hanged, they're going to get burned, hanged alive. Renounce Jesus. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You're not going to win. And he said, um, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And he's converted, and he begins to preach the gospel. Why would I read this text? To give you a biblical example of what God does to hard-hearted sinners. You've got a text in your hand now that you can now take this text, and you can bring it to God, and you can say, look, 
My son has never killed my daughter, my uncle, my great-grandfather, has never killed a Christian person, has never burned down a church. Save him. You saved Saul. You could save him. I know you could do it. He's 75, he's 89, whatever. He's 24, he's in all kinds of sin. You can save him. i give you a, a vivid example, right? I was talking to this, a lot of illustrations coming from yesterday, but it, it's on my mind, fresh on my mind. Manhattan, homosexuality, lesbianism, all that stuff, rampant, right? So I was talking to the pastor, and, uh, um, and I asked him, well, how, you know, what, what does that look like in your church? You know, do you get people who are gay coming, homosexual coming to your church, and how do they respond? He says, well, a lot of them, of course, never come back, right? Once they hear the preaching of the word, they just don't come back. He said, but there was this young man who was coming, and he said, unbeknownst to us, he continued to practice homosexuality, right? But he was coming to church, and he was actually going to the abortion mill with people from the church. So he's going to write Sunday school, the common operations of the spirit. He knew that that was sinful. Uh, Abortion was sinful, but he had his little sin. So um, he's talking with the ladies at the abortion mill, and he said he was going on a date that evening. And they went, who? And he said, a fella. Name, I guess. And the lady said to him, that's sinful. You can't do that. You're going to church. You say you're a Christian. You can't do That's a sin. You can't do that. You've got to stop that. So he calls the pastor, and the pastor says, you've got to stop that. That's a sin against God. You can't continue to do that. And most people think that, well, he was a homosexual, so he left, right, because you're born that way. And most Christian people even think that way. They, they, they may not say that, but they think that way. That, ugh, that person's not going to change. They're gay. That's it. That's their thing. That young man last week was asking his pastor, how do I find a wife? What do I got to do? Shave, you know, dress a certain way. What what I got to do to find a wife? I want a wife, a woman, not a man. God changed his desires. God can do it. Why why would we be faithless? Why would we not trust in what God can accomplish? He does great, wonderful, and magnificent things, things that we could never imagine. You know, if, if Elon Musk builds a colony on Mars, what, that's, what are we going to pray? Lord, send us to Mars <laughs> so we could witness to the sinners on another planet, <laughs> right? And if he won't let us get on his spaceships, then we'll pray for spaceships. <laughs> and he'll give us spaceships, and we'll go to Mars and start a church, <laughs> Mars church, right? Um. So, with unconverted people. But how about, how about the, the spiritual work that we have to accomplish, right? So, you have unconverted people. Should we pray? Do we have an example of really hard-hearted people? Yeah, we have tons of examples in the Bible. So one. How about with the work that we have to accomplish? Well, think about Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. I mean, it was decimated. It was no place fit for worship. Animals had basically taken over. Uh, um, um, Gentiles, in essence, Moabites had taken over the land. It was just a disaster. But turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, 
and I'll, I'll, I'll read, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read big chunks out of Nehemiah, uh, a couple of places, to, to, and uh, some places from Ezra. Um, and uh, so here, uh, hear the word of God, Nehemiah 1.1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Keslev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah and asked me concerning the Jews who had escaped. And I, excuse me, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the providence are there in great distress and reproach. The walls of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem is broken, broken down, and its gates burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Right, so he's brokenhearted over these things. Now look at chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Right, so he's Nehemiah now because he was a very bright young man, was basically in the king's court now. Right? He was a courtier, and an important one because he held the cup that the king drank from, and um, basically to prevent the king from being poisoned. Right? That was an issue. People killed kings. So he's standing there. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Since you are not sick, this is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, right? Because the king could kill him. Maybe you're not happy with your job? Off with your head. May the king live forever, right? Don't kill me. (laughs) Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Right, so he was brokenhearted. So you know what the king says? It's not my business. I don't care anything about you Jewish people. Smile before I kill you. What does he say? What do you want? Tell, tell me what you want. So I prayed to, God, to the God of heaven. This was a quick prayer. The Puritans called these ejaculatory prayers. Right? We don't like that language, but what that means is a sporadic prayer. Just, Lord, give me, give me the words to speak to this man. So... I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it please the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Simple request, right? I just want to go and rebuild the ruins. That's what I want to do. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him. So these prominent figures. That, that, that's an important point, right? This is only coming from the king. The queen is also there. She's going to hear what the king says. This is official. How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and, sent, and I set him a time. Further, the king said to me, if it pleases the king, let letters, so, excuse me, further I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. 
and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So what did he do? He didn't only say, um, yeah, just let me go. He says, can you give me all of the material that I need to rebuild God's temple? And the king says, you got that. What, what did he do? He believed, and he says, it, was, it wasn't because the king was kind, benevolent, and merciful, but because the king made him, well, excuse me, God made him do it. It was because of God's goodness. So, all right, we, we look around, and we see our buildings, and we look at the dome, and all of our property, and we think to ourselves, oh, this is impossible, we're not going to be able to do anything here. Oh, well, maybe we could paint the upstairs. Instead of praying, Lord, um, just praying, Lord, the property that's on the other side of the church that is owned by the state, we're going to call the county, we're going to ask them to give it to us, Lord, may they please give it to us. And begin to pray for that every Thursday. I am shocked and amazed sometimes when I say on Thursday night, do you have any prayer requests? And everybody just looks at me. Nothing to pray for? There's nothing to pray for. Really? Not, not a thing? Not a peep? Not one solitary thing to pray for? No. We've got millions of things to pray for. We, we, there should be so many prayer requests pouring forth, Lord, that, that God would, would, would send a donor so that we could not have to let the dome fall in on itself. Can we pray for that? No? Why don't we? Should we, right? Could God answer that prayer? Good grief. The, the, Israel was like the enemy of King Artaxerxes, Right? They, not him himself, but the nation he conquered, decimated Jerusalem. And now you know what he's doing? He's rebuilding it. And, and we don't pray ridiculous prayers. Like, God, may somebody show up on Sunday who we don't even know and give us $100,000 so we can repair all our buildings. Pray every Sunday or Thursday night or privately. But then... As you consider the spiritual reformation of a people, right? Look at Ezra chapter, chapter seven, right? Because it's not just so. God answers those kinds of prayers to do things that are beyond our imagination. And you remember with Ezra, we're not going to take a look at these texts, but they actually gave money. He gave he gave the people money so they could go back to Jerusalem, and it was in his care so that they could rebuild everything, and they did. I mean, they rebuilt the temple. But in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, Ezra shows up, and look what's noted about Ezra repeatedly. This is noted in chapter 7 several times. Um, in verse 6 first. This Ezra, so the physical um, restoration of their places of worship, God answered this prayer when it seemed impossible to ever happen. The people themselves didn't have the resources to do it. God provided it for them. How about the spiritual reformation of the people? 
could God spiritually reform a people who had been lame and weak and faithless for generation for a generation? Could God really do that? No, God can't do that. But look, Ezra 7, 6. And this is noted on purpose, purposeful. This Ezra came from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Now look at verses 11 and 12. Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Now, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. And what does Ezra do when he gathers the people? Everybody stand up, and I'm just going to preach. And then the priests were around for those who didn't speak the language, and they provided interpretation and assistance. And what did the word of God do? It morally reformed this people who had been dead spiritually. The, the word of God does that. It reforms the people, people who have been dead, lame, weak, faithless for a generation. All hope was gone. Their place of worship was absolutely decimated. They were slaves in essence. And what does God do? In Ezra chapter 10, beginning at verse 4, the people are in all kinds of sin. Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, and, and right, this should be the disposition of God's people. Right? When, when there is sin, when, when a church is spiritually malnourished, not doing well, it's not good to say, well, at least we preach the gospel. No, you confess the sins that were actually here. The, the people of God have to take a personal and corporate responsibility for the sins of their church. So to have the mindset that, well, yeah, you know, but, no, there's no buts here. Ezra knew that the Jews knew the truth, but what does he do? He takes in hand their sins, and he wasn't even there, and he confesses them, and he weeps about their sin. And that is what you have to, you have to take personal responsibility for those things. You may not have been the person who was committing them, but you were a member of the church that did it. And your presence there, what your presence did was it affirmed others. Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men and women, children gathered to him from Israel. So he's praying to God privately. Lord God, forgive these people, restore these people, strengthen these people, and what does God begin to do? He begins to move among the people. And they come to Ezra. And Shechaniah, verse 2, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said, Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Why were they hopeful? Because Ezra was bringing the book. He was just preaching the Bible to them, preaching the Bible, preaching the Bible. And the more they knew about the Bible, you know what, what that, that built up their confidence. 
that build up their confidence to say, we're living sinfully, but there is hope with God. Let's go, let's confess our sins, let's find out what to do, and let's do the right thing. So God can restore, and he restores these people. So God can restore their places of worship. God has done it. He's done it historically. Scotland, he did it. He did it. He's done it in Europe. He did it in Germany. He's done it in so many places where he has restored the faith of a people, the worship of a people, right, good, pure worship. God has restored it. Places of worship, and then the people themselves, God restores them. He brings their lives in line and according to his word. And why, why, was this, why could they accomplish this? Because Nehemiah and Ezra, they didn't look at the circumstance and say, this is impossible. They looked to the God of heaven and they prayed. They said, Lord, help us. God, help us. They turned to the Bible. What does the Bible say? And they, and they preach, no matter how you know, wrinkly-faced and uninterested the people looked, they kept preaching the Bible. They kept, continued to preach the word. And you know what happens? God, the Spirit of God uses the word of God, yes, to give birth to the people of God, but also to morally reform, spiritually reform God's people. That's why there's such an emphasis on the word. That's why we sing those psalms, because you should memorize them, and they should be your battle cry. You should, you should be singing these words they should be in your heart and in your mind all the time. They should be what seasons and flavors your conversations with people, the scriptures. I had a third example, but I, I will, it's the Lord's day, and we ought to rest. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you anyway. I'm going to give it to you anyways. The third example is tyrannical governments. And what does God do with tyrannical governments? Right? So... King Hezekiah, I'll do it short. King Hezekiah is afraid because uh, Assyria is coming. This is in as Isaiah 36 and uh, Isaiah 37. And uh, the Rabshakeh, which is basically the spokesman for the king, shows up. And he says, do not think that the God of heaven can deliver you from Assyria. Surrender. And the people had been living in sinfully. But you know what that does to God? It provoked him. He said, oh, yes, yes, seriously? Do you think that's what's going to happen? And then in chapter 37, they look for Isaiah. Where's the prophet? We need to hear a word from God. Isaiah says to them, thus shall you say to your masters, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword of his own hand. Don't worry about Assyria. You're fine. That's what God does. And then Israel was free to worship. Now, it was only for a particular period. It could have been longer if Hezekiah wasn't so foolish. But he was a fool. But how about in Daniel, too, right? When those three young men, and I love this example, the three young men bowed down and worship the idol. Nah, no, we're not gonna do that. If you do not worship, this is in verse 15, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? That's, that's the wrong thing to say to Christian people. You shouldn't say that to Christian people. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. They're not even worried. We don't have to give you an answer. God's going to figure it out for us. And let's add this. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the god, the gold image which you have set up. We will not bow the knee to you no matter what. God's either two options. God's going to deliver us from your hand or you will be the hand that sends us to heaven. So do your thing. And we're not worried. That ought to be the disposition of God's people. Right? So, a, a vivid example. It's hard to be a Christian right now in Manhattan. Especially if you don't want to use a vaccine that is produced by killing an unborn child. That's what fetal line is. It's hard to be a Christian because you can't go into a lot of places and that, that, the places that you can't go to is getting smaller. It's getting to the point where they can't go to certain grocery stores and it's going to be more grocery stores. And you can't move into buildings without showing proof of action, vaccination. So, so what, what do you do when you're a Christian in Manhattan? You say, well, do your thing. God will figure it all out for us. And we're in the same state about an hour, 45 minutes away. It's going to come here. What are you going to do? Are you going to say, yeah, you know, it's part, it's part of progress, and if you want to be a part of society, you have to do it. Or do you say, based on my religious convictions, I could never and would never do it. So if I can't go to Walmart, I'm certain the crows are going to show up with bags of food in front of my house because I'm not going to starve. God won't let that happen. He's going to take care of me. He always has, always will, not worried about it. If you don't think that way, if you're sitting here arguing in your mind, Jesus' spirit is groaning at you right now because of your unbelief. And all he asks us to do is not to be able to accomplish those things, but to believe that he can do it. That's what he asks. He didn't say, you, you, you know, build up this, the ability, the finances, the faith. Build, but no, he says, just trust that I can do it and continue to labor, and I'll do it for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and as a people, Lord, we confess that in many ways, Lord, we lack faith. But Lord, please, we beg you, help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray, amen.